The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And you can join me every week at 10 o'clock Eastern Time live. And at the end of the day, we archive the show, and uh, you can download it uh, as an MP3 and listen to the show anytime you want. So um, this morning, I have uh, I have two guests. Uh, my first guest is a surprise because we're going to is Hillary Kloss. She's a uh, recent MSW graduate. Actually, she's my marketing assistant and uh, helps me to book all my guests. So our first guest actually didn't show up. So now Hillary and I are going to do the show. Uh, how are you, Hillary? I'm good. How are you? Good. We got a second guest also, um, Jenny Lawson. Um, Jenny Lawson is a columnist and one of the most popular bloggers in America. She uh, has uh, 200,000 plus followers on her blog, and it seems to me everybody's blogging, but she's really made it big. She's called The Bloggest, and you can go to her website, blogest.com, and she's written a new book called Let's Pretend This Never Happened, a Mostly True Memoir, and it's very, very funny. But uh, So, Hillary, how are you? I woke you up this morning, I think, did I? Oh, no, no, no. I was awake. I've been awake for a while this morning, but I've been reading... Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know if you've read that yet. Have you heard I about read that it. book? Well, one of my girlfriends no. said to me, she's not reading it. <clears throat> she Is it real sexy? Well, I'm only in the first chapter, so it hasn't really gotten anything, you know, juicy yet. But, you know, I've been putting it off, and I finally figured, well, I must be a reason why it's so popular, so I'll give it a try. Everybody's reading it. I've seen them reading it on the plane. You know, I just got back from Europe. <clears throat> losing my voice, and every not every other person, but I saw several people reading it. So I uh, know that'll be my next read. Well, I wanted to talk to you today about the, well, the guest that we're going to have on the show was a physician, and uh, actually I should mention the title of her book because it is an important book, Natalie Digate Muth, M-U-T-H. She's a doctor. She's a uh, dietitian, a community pediatrician, and her whole thing is her book is all about teaching children <clears throat> how to eat well. Her book, Eat Your, Vegetab- uh, Eat Your Ve- Vegetables, uh, is and Other Mistakes Parents Make, Redefining How to Raise Healthy Eaters is the title of her book. So let's talk about that because, I, as I said, I just got back from Europe and we were in Croatia, <clears throat> which is the Dalmatian coast with the former Yugoslavia. And let me tell you something. The children there, and we saw lots of children. We stayed at resorts. We were in the small towns. You do not see a lot of overweight or obese children, and they eat very differently than we do. And the vegetables are fresh. The fish is fresh. The cheeses are fresh. 
Um, and I noticed how people eat. They don't eat, they don't overeat. It's a very different culture of eating, and it produces a very different type of, of, um, of eater. I mean, you just, the, the, everyone looks much, much healthier than they do in the United States. It's really sad for us. And do you think that's more of a, you know, more because of the resources that they have there? Or do you think it's more of the lifestyle? You know, okay, let's, what do you mean the resources? Yeah, okay, resources. We have the same resources. Well, right, but you mentioned, like, everything is really fresh, like the fresh fish, the fruits, the vegetables. And in some places in the United States, you can't get, you can always get fresh food. Um, and if you do, it has a lot of preservatives or chemicals or whatever in it. Um, but at the same time, I think there's also a lot to be said about a lifestyle. You know, if you're if you grow up in a family where they always eat healthy foods and always eat, you know, fitting portions, then, you know, that can also shape the way a child eats as well. I think that's right, but you know what we also do? Every time I go to a different country, the one thing I go to, to, I go to see is a grocery store, like a grocery store in like a suburban middle-class neighborhood. And we did this while we were in Croatia. And if you go to the grocery store, you have, in their grocery stores, there's, in terms of choice, there's so many fresh cheeses not the kind that's packaged and, you know, is full of chemicals when you read the label. And right. there are so many fresh fruits to choose from. And uh, it's the choice. The choices are actually there. You don't have to, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's the grocery stores themselves, the availability of this food, maybe you're right, um, is right there. And those are the kinds of, of foods that people eat. And they don't, and, and I'm not saying there aren't any processed foods in their grocery stores. There are, but it's, um, it's at a minimum, you know, it's maybe, a, say, I don't know, I'm making this statistic up, but it's, say, a quarter of what we have. And, our, you know, and ours is like, it seems to me like three-fourths chemicals or processed food, and the rest is fresh. Right, and that yeah. really shows where the priorities are, I think. You know, like in our grocery store, sure, it's cheaper to get that poorly made food and the, the food with a lot of chemicals and preservatives, but, but in the long run, that clearly doesn't help our children and help our families. No, so I, I think it's a really, I mean, obviously it's something I talk about on the show all the time, and I have guests who also, you know, come at it from different angles, but I guess my experience just being there for two weeks in Croatia was, you know, we have to do something about it, and we really have to connect the whole mind-body thing. If you have an unhealthy body, then you have an unhealthy mind, and then you have an unhealthy society and an unhealthy culture, and we're not going to be able to, to get ahead in, in, in the ways, that, you know, in positive ways. Yeah, and I mean... For children, that's especially difficult, I think, because they're not only eating at home, but they're eating at school and they're eating, you know, at friends' houses. So they're not just eating in one place all the time, and that can really send them a lot of mixed signals about what they should be eating, what they shouldn't be eating. Um, And it makes it kind of hard for children to determine what's healthy food, what what is something you should eat and what is something you shouldn't eat. Well, I want you to know I did I gained one pound while I was there <laughs> because I was eating very healthily, but I was eating a lot of it. No, I, you know, I probably came back weighing exactly the same because I'm very conscious of my weight. I'm conscious of my weight when I go on a trip, and but it's interesting. In some of the hotels that I stay at, I, yeah. they'll have a scale, but I think that they make the scale because they want you to eat and enjoy, you know, and go to the restaurants and the hotels. So I think that what they do is they take the scales and they um, – have them like five to seven pounds lighter than you really are. Really? Yes. Have you noticed that when you travel? Yeah, I have. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll look at this and I'll think, my God, this has got to be way off. And I, I think it is way I think that, yeah, they do that. Well, when you weigh yourself, do you find yourself saying, oh, my gosh, I've lost five pounds. Let's go out and have fun tonight. Yeah, no, because I know that I haven't. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm too little. I mean, I can tell if I've lost five pounds, right? Right, I mean, right. If I weigh 105, I know if I weigh 100, you know, it's going to, but I don't. But uh, and another thing I noticed, you know, tra- you know, I've always said traveling is great. It gives you a whole new perspective on things. Right. And it was mobbed. I mean, all the airports are mobbed because all the kids are traveling. Everybody seems to be traveling and families with kids and older people. And But one of the things, you know, you talk about overeating. One of the other things that I noticed that uh, travelers do is overpacking. <laughs> Not only do they... <laughs> They have huge suitcases. Now, I take an overnight bag to go for three weeks anywhere, wherever it is in the world. That's all I need. You can roll wow. up your, yeah, if you take the right thing and you roll it up and you pack it well, you don't need you know, a huge suitcase, which is just cumbersome. It affects the way you travel. It makes it more difficult, um, you know, whether they lose the bag or you can't put it in the overhead rack or if you're going from place to place, you have to pack and unpack. All of that adds to the kind of like making the trip far more cumbersome than it has to be. Yeah. So I wanted to go around to everybody and interview them and ask them, what do you have in that suitcase? What do you need? Yeah. To yeah. That's interesting. I mean, were you finding that it was Americans who were overpacking or just people in general at these airports? I think, well, I w- it was hard for me to determine who was who because people were from all over the world. But right. I would, yeah. But they... So that, I, I'm not sure, but I can just say that there's too much, too much stuff. Um, there was just huge, huge suitcases. It, was, it amazed me. And at first I thought, well, maybe it's just older people and, you know, they bring too many clothes. But even, like, younger people in their 20s, I mean, it was, you know, I, seriously, I had this little, tiny little bag and I felt so free. Um, all you need is your money, your meds, your passport, you know, a pair of pants, a dress, and underwear, and yeah. two pairs of shoes, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, but, and it definitely makes things a lot easier, but I think that like if you overpack like that, you kind of lose the fact that you're on vacation. You know, the point of going away is that you're experiencing new things, not bringing all your baggage with you around the world. That's true. Literally and figuratively. Yes, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, too much stuff. The world, we just we accumulate all this stuff. We eat too much. We pack too much stuff, we, uh, we have too much stuff in our houses, um, and I kind of think it's a worldwide phenomenon. Yes, yes, definitely. It's, it's, people are finding it more and more difficult to throw things away or get rid of things or to stop buying them to begin with. I never buy anything when I go on a trip either. None of the trink, all the stuff you can buy. You can buy it at the airports, you can buy it, well, anywhere on the streets. I don't buy anything. You don't get all the keychains and the pens no. and the... <laughs> <laughs> no. And I don't buy any presents for any of my friends or family either. Right. Um, yeah. So it's simple. So I don't have to decide who I'm getting something for. But it makes traveling a lot easier. It really does. Simplify, you know, I think this is... Simplifying is really important. Yeah, whether it's eating, whether it's your lifestyle, whether it's traveling, you know... In any aspect of life, I think the more simple you can make it, the easier it'll be for you, for for everybody involved. Um, And I think that's hard for people to do, and I'm not entirely sure why or for whatever reason 
it's difficult, but it is. It, it, yeah, well, I think it's about all that consumerism. And it, it, it really is not just in the United States. Um, I mean, I noticed it in Europe. We were in Stockholm, which was beautiful, uh, beautiful people, and very healthy. Stockholm has one of the healthiest, well, the, the water is, is pure, the air, um, and you really do notice that as well. I mean, usually I drink bottled water, but in, in Sweden I didn't. I just drank the tap water, and I'm fine. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, clean, very clean air. I, I don't know whether it's. I don't know whether it's because they don't have a lot of industry, or because they just, you know, they have very strict environmental laws, or whatever it is. But it's really, you can just, you know, the air is so clean, so clear. You know, it'd be interesting for researchers to determine if industry, like you said, really has an impact on your the long term effects of your health. I mean, I know it does if you're, you know, if you live right next to an a plant or, you know, facility like that that's pumping out a lot of pollution and, or contaminating your waters, that that's bad. But, I mean, if you compare country to country, you know, is it is there enough industry in one country where it is damaging their long-term health effects versus other countries? I think it would well, be interesting to compare. Well, definitely. And I mean, if you go to, and I went to Beijing like 10 years ago, 2001, mm-hmm. it's almost 11 years. And uh, that's one of the most polluted places I've ever, ever experienced. And I am sure that, I mean, I, I ended up get, having respiratory problems when I came home. And so did most, wow. of the peop- yeah, most of the people on the trip. I mean, if you go to Beijing, you can't see, you know, when the sun starts to set and all of that pollution kind of gets caught up in the heat and everything, you can't see 10 blocks down the street because it's How so How long hazy. were you there? Uh, three weeks. Wow. So just after three weeks of being there... You could notice the difference when you came home. Yeah. And I, and you know what? Well, I got it. I started getting the respiratory problems when I was there, as did most other people on this particular trip. Some people wear respirators, you know, those respirators, you know, those masks that you can put on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's that bad. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that that's obviously one of the, um, Beijing is one of the biggest cities, but, uh, and also taking a, 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 boat trip up the Yangtze, um, that was totally polluted as well. Oh, which is not not fun to see on a vacation, I would no. think. Oh, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it was really interesting, but you see, um, so, I mean, that's kind of the opposite. It's probably the other end of the extreme of, of Sweden and, you know, and probably, oh, you know, you ask about health. Yeah, I think Sweden has one of the highest... Uh, Mortality rates in the world. I think the uh, uh, yeah. Even though they have all that healthy air, is mortality right? They live the longest. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Oh, because, yeah. oh okay, okay. I don't mean mortality rates. No, they live. They they live the longest. Um, they. I think women. The average age is over eighty. It's like eighty three or something. And for oh. men, it's like seventy seven. So I yeah. guess the answer to your question is yes. It does make a huge difference. What you eat, the air you breathe, all of that, and yeah. all the environmental factors. Yeah, that. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of our guides was talking about that when we were in, when we were in Stockholm. That's incredible. You would think that having information like that would help change how countries operate. You know how they deal with environmental problems and how they address. Concerns like pollution, 
doesn't seem to be a topic that gets a whole lot of attention from politicians and government and things like that. Yeah, so what do you, oh, what do you, politicians and government, what do you think about, uh, apparently, Mayor Bloomberg, New York City, um, mm-hmm. asked President Obama and Mitt Romney to respond to this whole gun control issue as a result of what happened in Colorado. Right. Uh, but I don't think either one of them have addressed it, have they? that I've seen, it's been a, a tough topic. I know that the news sources have talked about it a lot, but I have not seen Obama or Mitt Romney really come forward with a, a clear statement on that. Yeah, so what do you think about that? I mean, it's... Uh... I mean, I think that it's sad that a situation like this has come up in order for gun control to be talked about, um, but I do think it's something that needs to be addressed and, and discussed, and I also don't think that banning costumes and banning masks in movie theater really address that issue of what happened. I mean, this man had untreated mental illness that was going on for a couple of years, I believe, and, you know, was able to get a gun. So I think that it's not the movie or the mask or you know, the storyline in Batman, that was the reason why he shot up the theater. I think it's those other concerns that that need to be addressed, and I'm not sure if those are what's getting attention right now. Well, I didn't, I, I hadn't heard that because I haven't been there, but you mean they're saying that people shouldn't be able to get in costume in theaters because that would, that's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, that's what some um, big chains are saying is that now they're banning people from wearing costumes or wearing masks into theaters which is not addressing the concern that the man was able to bring a gun into the theater. Yeah, it isn't. And I'll tell you, you know, it, it's absolutely not. What's going to happen is we're going to end up having to go, I would predict, we're going to have to end up going through security at movie theaters, uh, just yes, like we do at airports. And, and any, we're gonna, it's going to end up any public institution. We're going to have all the similar kinds of security measures that we have uh, when you travel. And I think that a gun control policy would address that, or at least make it so that you didn't have to have so many security um, points at public places, you know, but I think that is where it's going. It's what it sounds like, because nobody really wants to address the gun control issue, so they'll just address the, the other issues of installing metal detectors when you try to go to the, the library and to the to restaurants and to the bowling alley. And Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I, I don't think that that's really addressing the issue of people wanting to own guns and people wanting to hurt other people with guns. Well, we have to take a break right now because our next guest is, is, uh, is here, Jenny Lawson, who's the columnist and the author of Let's Pretend This Never Happened, a mostly true memoir and one of the most popular bloggers in the United States. So we're going to hear, let's hear what she has to say Um I'm Catherine Zox, and uh, I've been talking to Hillary Kloss, MSW, MSW, I was going to say MSW student. You're no longer a student. <laughs> um, and uh, you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com on World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday live, Eastern, 10 to 11, and download the show at the end of the day and... uh, you can get it up on an MP3. Um, my next guest, Jenny Lawson, is author of Let's Pretend This Never Happened, a mostly true memoir. She is America's most popular blogger. 200,000-plus followers. You can go to theblogs.com. Um, she's a very cool lady. And, uh, you know, one of the, the promos for a book said that you can't stop laughing once you start reading the book, which is so true. Um, Jenny, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much. So nice. And I have to say, I am a huge fan of Augustine Burroughs and David Sedaris, and you are the female version of them. I love it. That sardonic, dark side, irreverent. Um, it's so cool. Uh, I love it. I actually just got um, Augustine Burroughs did uh, the blurb for my paperback, which doesn't come out until maybe next year, but um, he did a blurb that said, even when I was funny, I wasn't this funny. And I was like, <laughs> you've just made my whole year. Do you know who you are? He was like, yes, I do know who I am. Who are you? Like, why are you acting like this? It's so cool. But, you know, how does, where, do you, where does it come from? Where does that humor come from? I mean, when you were a little girl, did you know how funny you were? Or did you, you know, I'm like, no. You know, no, I had I had um, really no clue, and I had very severe, I still do, um, very severe anxiety disorder, but at the time it was untreated, so I was extremely shy and quiet, and um, I would say that probably most people from my high school, which was tiny because I lived out in the country, would not even remember that they went to school with me from kindergarten until 12th grade because I was I just hid and was terrified all the time. Um, I think that the humor comes from, honestly, I think it comes from a, ger- a very dark place. Um, most of the funniest things that I've written about are about tragedy and about having miscarriages or having mental illness or dealing with death or dead animals or, you know, I mean, it really, if you look at, especially this book, the funniest chapters are truly, if you try to explain them without reading them, they're, they're horrific subject matters. But they're the subject matter that we all, you know, it's all, the, the subjects are all in all of our lives. And like you said, I think maybe you mentioned in the book, it's the kind of stuff like you think it, but you don't say it, or you, but you say exactly. it and you write it. <laughs> exactly. I own it. 
And, and, and what's really nice is that now, you know, I'm starting to, and I saw it before with the blog, but now with the book, you see it in a way that you never did before. Where all of these people coming out and saying, I thought I was the only one. I thought that I was the only person who thought that um, Jesus was a zombie because he came out from, you know, back from the dead. And, and then suddenly they go and they find this tribe of people who were all so alike and, and they realize that they're not alone. Um, I think and that's so true. And I want to say, Jen, because in the book, I went right to the chapters on motherhood and vaginas because that's what I associated with. And <laughs> yes. The one on motherhood was so, I mean, I have three boys who are grown up now, but that chap, you know, when you first have a baby and you read all these books and you're supposed to be sort of like kind of the Madonna image that we're supposed to have, and you write about, I mean, you somehow, at first you can't even remember that you're a mother, like, is this my baby? I mean, I remember thinking those things, like, (laughs) and if I don't concentrate, I'm going to leave him somewhere, like at the grocery store, because I'm not used to having him. Exactly, Um, exactly, and you start to think, like, I should really have nachos, and then you're like, wait a minute, I have a baby, I should feed that baby, and then you're like, but nachos sound really good, and then you start to make the nachos, and then you hear the baby crying, and then you're like, whose baby is that? You're like, oh, that's my baby, (laughs) I have a baby. I know that was. I just. I really identified with that, and I'm sure, obviously, a lot of women do or did. But then talk about. I mean, this is. The, you take the topic of. I mean, you, the miscarriages and 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 babies dying, and and somehow you make it funny. Let's talk about that chapter. That was. Um, you know, that was the second hardest chapter to write. Um, it was. It was difficult to write. Um, just because, um, well, first of all, I hadn't completely kind of gone over in my head, you know, what it was like to, you know, lose these children. And I have anticardiolipin syndrome, which at the time was undiagnosed, um, but it's a blood disorder. And um, that's why I kept having these miscarriages. The hardest part for me to write about was the fact that um, I became, after the uh, first miscarriage, which was the most sort of violent, traumatic one, I became uh, suicidal. And it was one of the first times in my life that I, you know, truly um, needed psychiatric help. And so, I, you know, I kind of write about that. Um, but at the and same you also time... you got antidepressants. The drugs yes. themselves made you suicidal, which is what they're not supposed to do. Exactly, which, yeah, which is the exact opposite yeah. of what antidepressants are. I was yeah. like, really? These antidepressants are making me like really good at looking up suicide message yeah. boards. And oh, my husband was like, oh, that seems wrong. And I was like, well, it feels wrong, but still, it's happening. This was before before people knew that you know you had to you know kind of double check your medications to make yeah. sure you were on the right one. And you know nowadays it doesn't happen as much, but. Of course, this was, you know, 10 years ago when, 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 when if you said, you know, oh, these medications are making me suicidal, they were like, what's wrong with you? Nowadays, yeah. people would be like, oh, okay, you just need another medication. So it was different then, but you, I mean, it, but still, you went through how many miscarriages? Um, three, three at least, um, although it's possible that we had some more that just were not completely diagnosed because they were early, but three that went, um, you know, into, you know, the almost the second uh, trimester. And, um, but then they finally figured out that I had the anticardiolipin syndrome, um, still had another miscarriage, and then... Um, finally figured out that I needed to give myself a shot in the stomach twice a day for like a year to kind of cure it. 
And, um, and then I was able to have my daughter Haley and it was totally worth it. Worth all the shots in the stomach. But of course, like, what else am I going to say? Totally not worth it. (laughs) Right. My God, that child. (laughs) That was, uh, yeah. And there's a picture of you there. That's the other thing that we have. There are pictorial, you can actually see it. You lying there giving yourself a shot in the stomach to what kind of an anticoagulant or whatever it was? Did yes. you cure yourself of the disease or no? You just um, well, no. It was. Um, it, it's. It may. It's much worse during pregnancy. So basically, I had to take it for the three months prior to pregnancy to get my blood disorder sort of, uh, you know, working. Um, and uh, and then after everything, uh, after I got pregnant, then all the way through the pregnancy. So then after the pregnancy, then the disorder kind of goes away. So it's one of those things, you know, that um, nowadays it's much more diagnosed. But at the time, I was like, I can't even spell this disorder. What in the world is this? And um, But it's, it's been really um, helpful how many women are finding this book and are finding this chapter and are saying, I thought I was the only person who ever had this disease and, you know, things worked out for you. And I thought I was the only person who felt these you know, bizarre things or who, you know, dealt with it with humor, which, you know, dealing with tragedy um, with humor can be, I think, personally, I think it's the most amazing way to deal with tragedy because there's something about laughing. You know what? I so, that is so true and I so identify with that and I was just thinking as you're describing these women who have the same problem, who are probably, probably your humor and your writing about it and sharing your experience in the way that you share it with humor is better than taking an antidepressant. I mean, that really, yeah. yeah. And I just want to add one thing because something just happened in my, my best friend of, I'm not going to tell you how many years, but since I was nine years old, just died a horrific death from ovarian cancer. So I sat in hospice with her, and I sat with her sisters and her other girlfriends, and we're sitting around her bed. And one of the other friends of hers came in and said, you know, girls, would you like a glass of wine? And we sat around her bed drinking wine. She was still lucid but really couldn't talk. And kind of just making jokes, talking about, you know, who she had slept with, who we had slept with. This is a hospice. And, then I, and I just will finish the story by saying this, this, and he looked like a kid to me, but say this, you know, 25-year-old physician's assistant, gorgeous young man comes in and said he had to um, take her pulse and, you know, her heartbeat, et cetera. And do you have any questions? And, of course, we're all just kind of, you know, staring at him, these kind of cougars. And <laughs> he does what he has to do, and he leaves, and we start laughing, and we start talking to my friend and saying, you know, it's too bad you can't see him because you really appreciate his body. But it's kind of what you're talking about. And he was so uncomfortable because he was so young. He didn't really get it. He was taught to be really sober and somber. And <laughs> great. I mean, yeah. There's something about laughing at a monster that makes it such a smaller monster that makes it so much easier to deal with. And, you know, I I even start that particular chapter because, you know, most of the chapters of the book aren't really, you know, feminine based. Um, But, you know, that particular one was obviously because it's about, you know, birth and, you know, this, that sort of thing. And I think I start the chapter with, um, you know, this is going to be a chapter that might offend you because I'm going to be laughing about dead babies, but they're my dead babies. So I'm allowed to laugh about them. And and when I wrote it, I thought, oh my gosh, people are going to hate this. First of all, they're either going to hate it because they've never had a miscarriage and they're going to be like, you know, how dare you make fun of these women or they will have had a miscarriage and they'll be, you know, still be in that, like that, 
that horrible space of, of healing and they'll be, you know, this will be a terrible thing. And so far, every single person that I have talked to and that I've gotten emails from are like, this helped me so much. It helped to heal. Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, you must have gotten like, you get, what, millions of, of, of responses to your blog every day. I, I do. You, yeah. I do. Um, what's, what's really, um, both nice and not nice is that I get lots and lots of, um, suicidal letters um, because I do talk about mental illness and anxiety disorder and depression and um, so I get I, I do get lots of letters from people who are you know considering suicide or you know just need some help and you know so I, I try to, to help as much as I can and I write you know very frankly online about the you know the jerk that is depression I, I typically use you know harsher language but <laughs> Um, but but what's interesting is that I have this folder. Well, you can use people. that here because I know you said you need. I mean, I know you write for other. I'm not going to say more conservative, but more mainstream uh, publications. But you got you, you can do your blogging. You can say whatever you want. But you can say it on on internet radio too. So you're not. Oh, awesome! All right. Yeah. So the so the bastard of mental illness. You know. The, <laughs> oh right. The, yeah. Yes. So um, so I I would you know write these these things, but I've had. I want to say like 25 different people who have sent me emails who have said that they were planning their suicide and um, decided not to and decided to get help simply because of the blog and not because of what I had written, but because I had written this post and thousands of people responded to the post with and, and one story that one person would say would touch that person and they would say, oh, my God, that's my exact same story, and they're still making it. So, so it's kind of amazing that because of this community, there are, you know, mothers and fathers and sons and daughters who are still alive today because this community came together, even though it came together because of humor and bizarre humor at that. You know, this is like um, social work in the 21st century. It is. It absolutely I'm, is. Yeah, because you and also you you reach so many more people. Uh, did you expect this? What did you think was going to happen when you started doing that? I mean, did, was this your intention, or was this just something that you? Well, I'm you know I'm talented. I'm a good writer, and uh, I, I'm going to start this blog. Or did you you know really hone in on like uh, you knew that you had some idea that you get these kinds of responses? I had no idea. What happened was I was reading this parenting blog on the Houston Chronicle, and the woman who was writing it wrote a post that said, I don't think that you can be a blogger and a good mother, so I quit. And so I emailed the editor and said, well, apparently I'm a terrible mother because I'll do it. I'll do it for free, Um, just because I thought it would be fun. And I was working in HR at the time, and I just thought, oh, this will be like a, a nice thing, you know, a way to kind of share being a new mother and, you know, get some advice and... So I started writing for them, but I kept getting in trouble because I kept using the F word a lot, and um, and I and like that F word was like fart. I mean, it was they were so oh. they were just this was Miles. you know seven years ago, you know. So they were like, you can't use it. What are you doing? So I started um, the bloggers.com just as a way for me to like talk to the two people that were reading my blog without you know any censorship. And then within a couple of years, I had all of these readers and followers, and I still don't completely understand it. Every once in a while, I'm like, I have a quarter of a million Twitter followers, and I just, like, write stuff about, like, making waterbeds for my cats, you know? I mean, I write the most ridiculous, 
horrible things and people completely relate to them. And I, and I think that's not only is that wonderful for them, but it's wonderful for me because it's been very therapeutic to have some, to have like this community of people who get you and support you. And yeah, that's the only reason why the book opened at number one on the New York Times list is because I have this great amount of support. And what's so amazing is, you know, at that first week, really, basically, all the people who bought the book, they they were, you know, already my readers. And so they, they knew my voice. All the stories were pretty much new. But, you know, they knew my voice and they wanted to support it. But now I'm getting just the opposite, where I'm, I've got all these people who are big fans of the book who are going to the blog and saying, oh, my God, I didn't know you had a blog. You have a blog. Now I can keep, like, keep up with your life. This is great. So it's nice. That's it's nice. Yeah, I mean, what a success story. I mean, it's so fantastic. I mean, because, you know, every, I mean, I have so many people want me to read their most blogs, not, I shouldn't say this, but a lot of blogs are so boring. I mean, right. I, you know, they really aren't that interesting. And then, yeah, and somebody was asking me the other day, do you read my blog? And I, well, not really, no, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to read your blog after reading. I'm one of those who read the book and now I'm going to read the blog. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, you you will be in for a treat because I uh, actually just wrote about how my uh, it was our anniversary and I wanted to do something to like really celebrate the anniversary so we really remember it and so I rented a sloth and a kangaroo and a bunch of animals and I had them like let them free in our house and my husband came out of his of his office and was like why is there a, there's a kangaroo on the floor why are you holding a sloth where are the hedgehogs coming from what is going on it was awesome oh, we didn't really mention this in the beginning because all this affiliation with animals and stuff could was your father a taxidermist? Yes. Yes. Yes, professional, and still is a professional taxidermist, yes. So you came from a wild family. I mean, you, kind of, you know, came from a, a... Very country. Yeah, very Texas? Yes, very Texas. Very West Texas. Yeah, and it, it you know, I, I thought that it had skipped a generation because I, you know, I, I don't hunt and I... I can't kill an animal, and I and so I was like, oh, okay, this is this is definitely skipped a generation. But I have within the last probably several years, I have d- developed this affinity for terrible taxidermy, like really bad taxidermy or um, taxidermy what's the animals. For those that I, like, what's I'll bad taxidermy? What's good taxidermy? Uh, well, good taxidermy would be like, you'd look at it for a second, you'd be like, is that alive? And then you'd be like, no, it's not alive. Bad taxidermy is like, you look at it and you're like, oh, holy crap. That thing, was that ever alive? Because this looks terrible and you can't help but laughing. That is bad taxidermy. Um, so, and, and then I have this collection of little taxidermy animals and they all like died of natural causes, but I dress them up in clothes and then take pictures of them and make like little postcards and like little, I have a, an ermine whose name is Hermione Granger and, uh, she's dressed in the Gryffindor costume and, uh, I have Ron Weasley, who's a weasel. And so, yeah, I have a whole collection. And who's on the front of the book? Because the book cover has a, uh, a I think yeah. it's a mouse, right? That, yeah, that's Hamlet von Schnitzel, and it's a little mouse dressed as Hamlet, and he's holding another mouse skull, which is you know York. Alas, I knew him well, and uh, and you know it's it's kind of funny because when I when I uh, when we were looking for a cover for the book and. 
the publishers were like, well, how about this? How about this? And I was like, uh, and I said, and I said it totally as a joke. I was like, you know what? I have something from uh, my collection that might work. And I sent them a picture of this, you know, dead mouse. And I was like, here, let's put a dead rodent on the cover of the book. That'll be great for the sales team. And, uh, and they were like, well, okay, all right. And so the joke was on me. There's a dead mouse on the cover of my book. So. And a very elegant one, though. Exactly. Oh, he's got a little a cape and mm-hmm. his Jacobean ruff. And, yeah, he's set. Yeah, he's, he's a cute with the skull in his hand. Yeah. Very, yeah. It, well, it works. It definitely works. <laughs> so funny. So, all right, I want to just mention the – well, you're the blog S, so you go to blogs.com, right? Yeah. Yeah, the blogs.com. And I want to mention the name of the book again because it is it is a laugh out loud. It's like when you're sitting, I was sitting on a train laughing, and of course people think you're crazy, you know, <laughs> sitting there laughing to yourself. Let's pretend this never happened, a mostly true memoir, but mostly true just because you changed some of the names and the... Yes, yeah, I had to, um, in the, really the mostly true came from, there's a drug story, and I, I wanted to make sure that no one recognized themselves and was like, yeah, I'm the drug dealer that, you know, uh, sold acid to her when she was, you know, in college. So, so for the, for the, but for the most part, and it, I actually had to add a lot of photographs to the book, just because there were so many times that my, my publisher would be like, no one is going to believe this. And I would be like, well, would you believe it if I show you a picture of it? And they're like, oh, we're putting pictures in this book. That's all there is to it. Yeah, the pictures are great. I love them. And I, well, we have to mention one more thing because you uh, you keep and you mentioned this throughout the book that you're married to a Republican, which is also very funny considering yeah. where you're coming I am from. Not, but you've been married yeah. for 15 years and it's worked, right? It has. It has. I, I think it's just like a big opposites attract sort of thing. He's very conservative, Republican, and I am, you know, extremely liberal Democrat, and we disagree on pretty much everything you could possibly disagree about. But we have, um, I think what keeps us together is we have the same basic sense of humor. I mean, of course, he would say that my sense of humor is way more warped than his is. But when it comes right down to it, he makes me laugh and vice versa. And I think that's sort of the key to keeping us together, that even though we fight and we argue and occasionally I think I'm going to stab him in his kneecap just to make him shut up for a while, there's still he's going to say something that's going to make me laugh, and it'll be okay again. All right, so how does the Republican make you laugh? Um, he makes me laugh by um, he makes up ridiculous songs that have nothing to do with anything at all. He um, he does get my same politically incorrect sense of humor, so he will occasionally um, go along with me on on some of my jokes, and he has a tendency to. Um, although he would probably say this isn't true, but most of the funniest posts that I ever write, he has come up with one little part where he said like one throwaway line when he like he'll read every once in a while my blog and he'll be he'll roll his eyes and he'll say one throwaway thing, and that one throwaway line I'm like that is brilliant and I'll use it. So, um, so, so yeah, deep, deep down we're all the same. Yeah, I mean, you've got this kind of chemistry going, not kind of, I think, really. It's just, yes. yeah, and uh, you've got a great family. And the last question is, because only a couple minutes left, what about your daughter? Does she, I've got a, you know, crazy mom, or is she like you, or? She, uh, well, she takes after Victor more um, in that because she didn't, and luckily for her, she did not get the anxiety disorder and all of that, um, but... 
I think it's it's sort of awesome how, you know, she has a kind of childhood where um, she'll walk into the living room and there's a kangaroo and her mom's hugging a sloth and there's hedgehogs running around. And so, you know, a little part of me is like, you know, there's something a little magical about that kind of childhood. There's there's something a little bit nice. There's There's not a whole lot of crazy elements. I don't bring home any, you know, recently dead animals and, you know, wear them around the house. And it wasn't like, you know, my childhood growing up. But I'd like to say that that, uh, her childhood is probably a little more whimsical than the average child. Yeah, I mean, it's fanciful, but it's really, those are the kinds of books that you read to kids. But this is like the real stuff when she walks home, when she comes home from school. She never knows what kind of a animal will be dancing on the couch or whatever. And that makes it fun. Exactly, exactly. None of this repressed kind of emotional stuff. I can't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I always think, like, I wonder if she decides to write what her book will be like, because I can already see these stories of, like, and then my mom saw a bear out in the wild and grabbed my hand and ran toward it as fast as she could so she could take a picture of it. I mean, like, she's going to have some great stories, so I'm giving her a lot of material. Yeah, you definitely are. What, she's, what is she, eight, nine, ten? She's seven. She's seven. She's okay, seven. So she's, yeah, fourth grade, yeah. fifth grade, yeah. No, yeah. not fifth grade. Um, no, no, she's uh, going into second grade. Yeah, seven. That's a great age. But anyway, you're you're a great family, and uh, I, I just it was a real pleasure to have you on the show today. It's really Thank funny. You. It's uh, yeah, and I do recommend the book. I mean, just this is such a great read. Your book is one of those that you can't put down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good thing. That's a yeah, good. Thing. And you know, and, and also what I love about it is that it's like a weekend read. It's one of those where you're like, okay, I think I'm going to read this book, and then at the end of the weekend, you're like, okay, I've completed it, and either I absolutely love it or whatever. It's just been a weekend, you know. Yeah, it's not I, like it, love in the time of cholera where you're exactly. like, oh my god, you know, yeah, yeah. trudge through this. That's what my boyfriend gave me for a present: love in the time of cholera. Oh, and I'm going to end that on that book. one. <laughs> God, that book kills me. I, I kept know. waiting for it to get better, and I was like, please, why does everyone love this book? Someone explain it to me. And I, I know. couldn't find anybody. Everybody was like, yeah, you've got to work for it. You do, exactly. <laughs> Let's pretend this never happened, a mostly true memoir by Jenny Lawson, and she is the blog S, and you can go to her website at the blog S, or www.blogs.com. Thanks so much, Jenny, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to have you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. I'm your social worker with a microphone, VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great week, and we will see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. 